Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is the first in a multi-part series on healthcare professionals and the courts. We managed to interview a judge, a QC and a procurator fiscal who give expert advice on everything related to the interface between healthcare and the legal system. I do focus a lot on doctors during these interviews, but I guess we do get called more frequently to court and our involvement is probably a little bit different and more detailed compared to other health professionals. But I hope these podcasts will still benefit anyone who is called to give evidence. We've tried to cover all of the main essentials, starting with court structure and understanding who is involved in the system, through to how we deal with citations and police statements, and finally ending up in the court itself. And if you're ever called to give evidence, our experts will give guidance on what to expect and how to conduct ourselves in court. So let's just jump right in and we're going to begin with our three guests just introducing themselves. I hope you enjoy. Hello everybody. Uh, my name is David Parrott, QC. I'm Queen's Counsel in Scotland. I'm also a barrister in England and Wales. I'm also a barrister in Northern Ireland. I'm interested in training and particularly uh, the interface of training between the medical profession and the legal profession. For five years I was a director of training and education in the Faculty of Advocates and have a great interest in preparation of witnesses for court. I'm Maura Orr, I'm the Procurator Fiscal for Glasgow and I work for Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. Hi, I'm Andrew Cuby. I sit as a sheriff at Glasgow Sheriff Court, one of 27 sheriffs here. Uh, I've been here for about eight years. Before that, it was at Stirling Sheriff Court for about seven years, having first been appointed in 2003. So, Andrew, perhaps we'll start with you, if that's OK. Do you mind just explaining to us what exactly is a sheriff? Um, a, a sheriff is a Scottish judge, a first instance judge, uh, sits in the Sheriff Court, has jurisdiction in both civil and criminal cases. Civil cases, anything under £100,000 must come to the Sheriff Court. We can do all kinds of family cases, social work referrals, fatal accident inquiries. And in the criminal jurisdiction, we have sentencing powers up to five years for Sheriff and jury matters and up to 12 months for summary crime. That's where a Sheriff sits alone um, without a jury. There's been a relatively new judicial post called the Summary Sheriff, which emerged uh, a couple of years ago. These are judicial officers, judges who have only jurisdiction to hear summary crime, that is sitting without a jury, and lower level civil matters. Uh, I, I have the full range of powers, so can sentence people, as I say, up to five years and can deal in civil cases with limitless value. And what would be the traditional route to becoming a sheriff? Um, all sheriffs have been practising lawyers. Um, I was a solicitor in private practice in the west of Scotland and uh, I was one of the first people to be appointed by the Judicial Appointments Board. Up until about the late 1990s, appointment as a sheriff would be a tap on the shoulder from the Lord Advocate and that restricted the pool of people for whom that was a realistic option. That was seen to be not very transparent and they set up uh, what eventually turned out to be the Judicial Appointments Board where they advertise the jobs, you fill an application form in, you have referees, 
you go for interview, you do a presentation and then an independent board recommends you for appointment or otherwise. Um, so it's open to anyone who has been a solicitor and advocate for, I think, up to 10 years in practice and you just require to establish before the Judicial Appointments Board that you have the right uh, skills and experience uh, to be a judicial office holder. Is there any further examinations to become a sheriff? No, there's no examination as such. There's simply the Judicial Appointments Board procedure. I guess it's felt that having had enough experience doing frontline court work, you've picked up the skills and resources that are necessary. There is uh, compulsory training. Uh, uh, there is an induction course which all judges at whatever level have to undertake when they're appointed uh, five days of induction training at the Judicial Institute for Scotland. That is the only compulsory training that judges undertake, but there is a clear recommendation from the Lord President, who is effectively the Chief Judge in Scotland, that all judges undertake five days of training every year, uh, some of which can be self-taught, some of which using outside facilities, but the majority of which will be at the Judicial Institute for Scotland. And what would be the equivalent in England, Wales and Northern Ireland? Um, it would be a circuit judge in England and Wales and a county court judge in Northern Ireland. We are banded uh, together, for example, for the purposes of the Senior Salary Reviews Board. These judges are seen as equivalent throughout the United Kingdom. A summary sheriff in Scotland is equivalent to a district judge in both England and Wales and Northern Ireland, although the powers they have are slightly different. But that's the kind of judicial hierarchy. OK, David, would you mind just explaining to us what a QC is and what their role is and when we as doctors are likely to encounter them? Well, a QC stands for Queen's Council. It's a, a senior member of what's called the Faculty of Advocates. There's two streams of the profession in Scotland. The advocates, who you might know from wearing wigs and gowns. And on the other side, there are the solicitors, solicitor profession. And you'll be able to tell them from wearing just black gowns, no wigs. There's a kind of hybrid called solicitor advocates uh, who have rights of audience in the higher courts. Uh, they don't have wigs, but they do have gowns as well. So if you're coming into court for the first time and you see wigs, then you'll know it's an advocate, a member of a faculty of advocates. Now, you can have junior counsel and senior counsel within the faculty. I am a senior counsel. I am a queen's counsel. I am a silk. They're all synonymous. They all mean the same thing. So after normally about 15 years or so of practice as a junior counsel, you're entitled to apply for silk, uh, for the higher level of Queen's Council, and that is um, on the grant of Her Majesty the Queen, and you're given this fancy title, <laughs> Queen's okay. Council. And what sort of cases are you more frequently involved in? So if a Queen's Council is involved in a case, it's probably quite complicated or of high value. Um, less important cases or less uh, uh, financial cases, high financial level cases, are dealt with by junior counsel or by the solicitor profession. So just thinking about in the criminal context, a murder case or a rape case, uh, you might employ senior counsel for that. A big commercial case or a complicated case would be a Queen's counsel. And Maura, would you mind just explaining what a procurator fiscal is and what your role is? Procurator fiscal is responsible for 
prosecuting all crime in the Sheriff and Justice of the Peace Courts in Scotland and also before a Sheriff and Jury in the Solemn Courts and prepares cases for prosecution in the High Court of Justiciary. Another important role that we have is the investigation of deaths in Scotland. All sudden, suspicious or unexpected deaths are reported to us and we have a duty to investigate those and, if appropriate, to arrange for a fatal accident inquiry to be held into the circumstances of the death. So in my basic understanding, there's two courts that we can be called to as doctors and that's typically the High Court and the Sheriff's Court. Do you mind just explaining to me what the main difference is between them? So just as a matter of terminology, um, the High Court, as you might know it, its proper name, its Sunday name, is the High Court of Justiciary. And that is uh, for serious crime, serious offences. And the Sheriff Court, and it's just the singular Sheriff Court, are a number of courts, inferior courts, lower courts, and you'll find them populated throughout the cities in Scotland. So I should have said, actually, at the beginning there, that the High Court, it's based in Edinburgh, but goes on circuit. And uh, traditionally, just went one town at a time. But now with uh, volumes of uh, prosecution business, it'll sit all the time in Glasgow, and will sit occasionally in Dundee and Aberdeen and places like that. And how do they differ in terms of who is present within each court? Um, They're fairly similar. Um, In in each case, there'll be a judge sitting on the bench. There will be a prosecutor, which in the High Court will be an advocate deputy, and in the Sheriff Court will be a procurator fiscal deputy. And there'll be a a defence representative who may be a solicitor or who may be an advocate or who may be a solicitor advocate. Some people have rights of audience in both courts. In the High Court, there will always be a jury because all High Court crime cases take place with a judge and a jury. In the Sheriff Court, there may not be because it may just be a summary matter, in which case there's there's no jury, as, as I've explained before. There are assorted other uh, court officials. There are rarely members of the public, although every trial is open to the public. Very few trials have enough high profile for the public to be terribly interested in them. And that's the kind of setup that you will see. Occasionally, of course, there's more than one accused. You may have a number of accused, all of whom will have representatives. But essentially, the setup is the same in both courts. So, David, would you ever be present in a sheriff's court or is it mostly solicitors there? You will find solicitors there. Uh, You will also find counsel there. Again, just drawing a distinction between criminal business and civil business. Um, in, In terms of criminal business... That would be the day-to-day, um, the, the common practice for solicitors to appear in the Sheriff Court. So if you go to Edinburgh here or Glasgow, um, you'll see a lot of solicitors every day doing lower-level crime. In bigger trials, you'll find uh, advocates and you'll find QCs. So how is it decided which is the appropriate court for a, a case that's going to trial? For COPFS, we are looking to decide into which forum we should mark a case when we've decided it's appropriate to proceed. And I should just interject and say that COPFS is the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service, which is the independent public prosecution service for Scotland and part of Scottish Government. So whether a case is in a summary or sheriff and jury court or the High Court of Justiciary will generally depend on the nature of the crime and the possible sentencing options available in those courts. 
Well, the High Court has exclusive jurisdiction for murder cases and rape cases and still theoretically treason, although that has not happened for a long time. Ordinarily, cases will be marked for the High Court if they are, for example, serious drug offences where the sentence anticipated will be more than five years. It's a matter entirely for the prosecutors, what court they prosecute in. It's not a matter for the judge. Uh, And there is a power as a sheriff to, in fact, remit a case to the High Court if you think your sentencing powers are inadequate. Uh, I could send someone to the High Court if I think five years is inadequate. Uh, And there is that limited ability to remit cases up. The High Court can do all crime, but more and more cases are coming down to the Sheriff Court. So we deal with very serious drugs matters, very serious historical sexual abuse, which is a a common occurrence, arson, serious assault, assault to severe uh, injury or to impairment of life or to danger of life are all matters that routinely are in the Sheriff Court. So it's fairly high tariff stuff with the High Court having exclusivity in murder, rape and treason, as I said. David, would you mind possibly running through the main broad reasons that we could be called to court? I think the best way of uh, looking at this is to think, why is it? What's the nature of the case that you're being invited to court to give evidence? And that is the primary purpose of your attendance, is to give evidence. There are different kinds of evidence, um, Uh, in different capacities, by which I mean you might be called, for example, to give evidence at an FEI, that's a fatal accident inquiry, um, a bit like a coroner's inquest down south. But the purpose of that is not to lay blame, but to find out the facts of what actually happened that led to the fatality. In that respect, you are just there to provide factual account of what you know. You might be called, secondly to give evidence in your capacity as a treating physician or as a treating doctor. So in the course of what you have done at some point in your occupation, with the records and all the rest of it, you're being asked questions about what happened. Again, it's factual. The third reason for you being called might be because you're presenting expert testimony, expert evidence. And in that respect, there are particular duties incumbent upon you um, in giving of that evidence, and that's a whole different field. And I think it might be worth even expanding a little bit more on the differences between a professional and an expert witness. Um, So maybe Andrew and, and actually Moira as well, would you both mind just giving us a little bit of added information on those differences? Well, I think there are, there are probably two separate capacities in which you would be called. Firstly, as a, a professional expert, and essentially a witness to fact about what you saw when someone came into A&E with a sword sticking out of them, for example. Uh, and that would be simply recording what you encountered and giving a factual answer in relation to your professional engagement with the, the particular person. Secondly, doctors are often called as experts where you are entitled to give an opinion. Ordinarily, witnesses who come to court aren't expected or entitled to give an opinion. They're just talking about what they've seen happen or heard happen. It's different in circumstances where the facts might give rise to certain inferences and the court needs the assistance of an expert in order to tell us what inferences can reasonably be drawn from the facts that have been established. 
And in that context, uh, there are there's a slightly freer role, if you like, for a doctor when called to give evidence as an expert in a particular field. The Crown will generally cite a doctor to speak to their treatment and assessment of a patient whom they've seen, often initially in an accident and emergency hospital. We are looking for evidence from you to prove that the witness or in a homicide case, the deceased suffered injuries at the hand of the accused. We will be looking for details of the injuries that you found, how the patient presented to you, any treatment that you gave them and any further investigations you may have instructed, for example, MRI scan or X-ray. You will often also be asked to give your opinion on whether the injuries were severe, which is an aggravation in Scottish law, or whether they caused either permanent impairment or permanent disfigurement, because again, both of these are aggravations which the Crown will seek to prove, and to do that, we generally require medical evidence. In the High Court, you may often be called to homicide cases, and despite the fact that a double doctor autopsy will have been performed, if the patient was taken to hospital before they succumbed to their injuries, you will generally be asked to come to court to explain again they're presenting a medical uh, condition and any treatment that you will have carried out. Professional witnesses, that is doctors, are always invited to give opinion in Scottish courts. For example, was the injury you saw consistent with the use of a knife or is it your opinion that after the normal healing process is complete, the injury to a victim will leave permanent scarring? That's your professional opinion which you're allowed to give and which overcomes the usual rule in Scots law that no witness can give an opinion as to what they think may have happened. A distinction is drawn between a professional witness and an expert witness and whilst there is some slight blurring of the lines, generally it will be made quite clear to you that you are being called as an expert witness because the Crown, Defence or other party who may be citing you will have contacted you in advance, indicated the specialisation in which they were interested and invited you to give an opinion as an expert. That is, very generally, that you hold qualifications, knowledge and expertise which takes you beyond the normal medical knowledge and into the area of being an expert. You will be asked to produce a report and on that basis you can be sure that you are being brought to court as an expert witness rather than as a professional witness as you may be, for example, if you were an A&E when a patient was brought to the hospital. So in terms of expert witness, what does it take to be an expert witness? Is it well defined what an expert witness actually is? Well, it, it depends on what level and area your expertise is being sought in. There will be some areas in which all doctors will be regarded as experts in relation to particular procedures. There will be other areas, however, where it's only because of length of experience, degree of expertise, qualifications perhaps, um, that you can be regarded as an expert in order to give the court assistance about inferences that can be drawn from uh, a particular set of facts. And, and often that will be in relation to, for example, the mechanism of an injury. 
could the injury have caused the death or could something else have caused the death where the expectation for the coat will be, be a degree of experience and exposure to this kind of injury to allow you to reach a, 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 an informed view as an expert about the conclusion that you reach at the end of the day. Often doctors will be called as witnesses to fact and then be asked questions that go beyond that by the solicitor genuinely wanting to know that might mean you tiptoe into the, the area of being an expert. And frankly, the law is a bit blurry about where the line is. Um, and first of all, it would need some kind of objection to be taken by the other side to the purported expertise. And then the judge would need to hear submissions from the parties about the extent to which this witness should be regarded as an expert or not. And there is some legal authority about it. Just within the last couple of years, there was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court about the nature of expert evidence. Now, it related to someone who was an expert in slipping and falling, but the same points arose about uh, what constituted the material that would allow people to call themselves experts. And that meant, is there a body that supports the view that they're taking? Is there peer review? Is there a sufficient body of serious science that supports it? There's, I won't go through all the criteria, but it's not as straightforward as saying there's a tick box list of four and if you tick them all, you're an expert. It's more complicated than that. And that's why there's sometimes the lines are blurred and that will usually be a consequence of the solicitor who's called the doctor not having thought through what the purpose of calling the doctor is. And David, you touched on it earlier. Uh, a third reason is a fatal accident inquiry. Do you mind just expanding on what that is? Yeah. You don't want to be involved in your own FAI. Yeah, they tend to be referred to as FAIs, uh, which stands for fatal accident inquiry. Um, it's a statutory procedure. It's, uh, it places a statutory duty on uh, a sheriff to conduct an inquiry as to why somebody's sudden death, normally, or unexplained death has happened. And therefore, it is the taking of factual evidence without the apportionment of any blame or any fault. And Andrew, you'd wanted to give a bit more of a formal description, isn't that right? Uh, yes, I think probably the best way of doing that, Owen, is for me to refer to a determination, and that's the, the what we call a judgment in a fatal accident inquiry, of a colleague of mine, Linda Ruxton's, in relation to uh, the death of someone called Gordon Ewing. Now, though this is eight years old, uh, Linda, who does a lot of fatal accident inquiries, sets out, I think, very well what the purpose of a fatal accident inquiry is. And I'm just, if you don't mind, going to read out from, from her determination. She said, it's appropriate to set out the purpose of a fatal accident inquiry in positive terms. First and foremost, it is to enlighten and inform those persons who have an interest in the circumstances of the death. Most importantly, it's to ensure that members of the deceased person's family are in possession of the full facts surrounding the death. However, in an inquiry such as this where the Lord Advocate considers that the death occurred in circumstances which give rise to serious public concern, the broader function of such an inquiry is to ensure that the circumstances are fully examined and disclosed in the public domain. It is the function of the FAI, where appropriate, to establish whether there were any reasonable precautions which might have prevented the death and to examine whether any defects in the system working were identified which contributed to the death. 
So the objective of such a public inquiry must be to ensure where lessons can be learned and steps taken to avoid any future recurrence, that those are identified and brought to the attention of those who are in a position to implement them. In this connection, it is legitimate aim of an AFI brought under the Act where there may be serious public concern that, wherever possible, that concern is assuaged and public confidence restored. This is particularly so where public institutions such as a hospital is involved. And I think for me that encapsulates quite well what the purpose of a fatal accident inquiry is. So in summary, um, the the law says that a fatal accident inquiry must take place if uh, a person dies within the course of their employment or whilst in legal custody. And a discretionary fatal accident inquiry can take place if the Lord Advocate considers that the death was sudden, suspicious or unexplained or occurred in circumstances giving rise to serious public concern. It should be noted that fatal accident inquiries are not there in order to place blame on any person, but rather for the sheriff to be able to investigate, assisted by the Crown, all the circumstances and factors surrounding a death, to decide when and where that death occurred and what the cause of death was, and also whether any reasonable precautions might have been taken whereby the death might have been avoided. If you are a witness in a death which had a medical background, it's possible that you may be cited by the Crown in order to assist them in presenting all the facts before the Sheriff, or you could be instructed by the family of the deceased person or perhaps on behalf of a doctor who considers it appropriate that they have another person to speak to a different viewpoint when it comes to the medical evidence. And do I need to do anything differently if I'm called to an FAI? Do I need, or should I speak to a lawyer? Do I need any additional representation? Or what what would you recommend? Not really, I would say. I would think the default position is no, because ordinarily being called to an FAI you will be being called as a witness to fact about your interaction with the deceased or some other member of the family. If you have a concern that there is some suggestion that you are implicated in some way, then it would probably be worth talking to a senior colleague or the medical defence union. But you certainly don't require to immediately run to a lawyer and have yourself lawyered up before coming along to give evidence at a fatal accident inquiry. So a huge thank you to our very, very special guests who you will hear more of over the next two or three episodes as we cover a lot more about the legal system. I think my main take-home points today are number one, a sheriff is a Scottish judge in the sheriff's court. A QC or Queen's Counsel is a senior advocate or barrister involved in higher tariff or more complex cases. And a procurator fiscal is responsible for prosecuting all crime in Scotland and investigating deaths. Number two, the High Court has exclusive jurisdiction for murder, rape and treason, but also all crimes likely to have sentences of greater than five years, and they all will have a jury present in each case. A Sheriff's Court can be with and without a jury, and is involved in a variety of civil matters, and also crimes of less than five-year sentences. Number three, we are likely to be called to court as a professional witness, and this is a witness to fact. And we're basically there to tell them what we did when we were treating the particular patient um, involved in the particular case. We may be asked for some opinion on the severity and outcome of the injury. An expert witness has added knowledge and expertise that allows them to give additional opinion 
and to help the court understand difficult aspects of the case. And finally, number four, a fatal accident inquiry is a statutory procedure where a sheriff investigates why someone has died. And this is mandatory if the death occurred in a place of work or in legal custody or is at the discretion of the Lord Advocate if the death was sudden, suspicious, unexplained or gives rise to public concern. So a huge thank you again to our guests. Please visit stmungos-ed.com for the show notes as well as lots of other additional resources. Many, many thanks to you for listening and take care.